Very happy all of you were able to join us. Uh, let's stand and ask the Lord's blessing upon our study this evening. Glorious God and Savior, how we praise Thee for uh, the time that Thou dost give unto us to be able to safely and without fear of uh, intrusion, uh, without um, worrying about safety of our lives by way of missiles around us, being able to gather as thy people to hear thy word taught and be instructed by thee. Lord, these are uh, indeed great blessings that even as we think about certain wars around the world now, uh, that many are suffering and many even uh, believers are uh, assaulted and under the threat of, um, of these types of uh, wars and conflicts. We pray, Father, that thou would bless our meeting, give to us a, a holy desire to know thee, and not merely to know thee with uh, our intellect, but to know Thee with our entire being, uh, with our will and with our emotions, with love and obedience. We ask, forgive us of our sins and cleanse our minds and our hearts that we may receive Thy truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are beginning John 16. This evening, John 16 and verses 1 through 7. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you, but now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So we move to another chapter. Uh, really, there's no break in the discourse that began in chapter 15. The Lord Jesus, uh, after uh, they had celebrated the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord had communicated uh, to them who would be betray him, in at the end of chapter 14, they leave the upper room 
And there is this discourse that begins in chapter 15, where the Lord says, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. That continues through chapter 16. And so we are just continuing from what the Lord had been saying in chapter 15. So there's not really a break in uh, location or in the discourse that the Lord is giving to his uh, disciples. It is still the Lord speaking to his 11. Judas has gone to betray the Lord uh, to the religious leaders. That's going to uh, happen in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18. Chapter 17 is a prayer um, that the Lord Jesus offers up to the Father. So that, that probably is a prayer, again, whether that's uh, doesn't say whether that's in the company of the uh, disciples or whether he's alone when he prays chapter what's in chapter 17. But uh, we'll get to that uh, uh, in the near future, that, that uh, chapter. But let's consider the words of the Lord Jesus here in chapter 16 and uh, beginning with verse 1. Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. What is he talking about? What things had he spoken unto them? Well, in chapter 15, the Lord Jesus had uh, said some pretty difficult things to receive. Verses 18 through 20, when the Lord Jesus said, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So these, uh, these words, uh, the Lord says in verse 1, he's given them this information about what they can expect to happen to them. They're going to be hated. We're going to be hated. They're going to be persecuted. We're going to be persecuted for standing in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord does not want to paint a, a rosy, comfortable uh, picture of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. He doesn't want to, to simply portray and communicate to his disciples that after he dies, is raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, it's just going to be all hunky-dory. Everything is just going to be, uh, they're going to enjoy earthly prosperity, they're going to enjoy fullness of health, uh, they're going to be uh, filled with just all the earthly comforts of this world. Uh, that's not what the Lord wants to communicate to them. And it's not true. But uh, that, sadly, is what, uh, if you turn on your TV or your, your radio, you can hear very often that that's what the Lord has promised. And yet the Lord says, no, I didn't promise that. I don't want you to be offended. I don't want you to stumble over what I've said simply because it's difficult. 
because of what lies ahead of you is going to be hard. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. To the contrary, Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us, that uh, those who love him, trust him, those who follow him, uh, can expect that there is going to be a cost, a cost on our parts. You remember Jesus said back in Matthew 16, 24, about all who follow him, that is those who are Christians, who follow the Lord, Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if anyone is a true follower of Christ, he or she knows that taking up a cross, and uh, that's not language that uh, is communicating that this is going to be uh, pleasurable. Taking up a cross is something upon which we're going to have to die to ourselves, die to our own pleasures, die to our, our, what we want, and be sacrificed for what is right, what is good, what Christ wants. Uh, our death to self is nothing like Christ's death for us. He bore all of our punishment. He bore our sins, that we might be set free. Our, our death to self uh, doesn't deliver us from our sins, doesn't deliver us from the guilt or the penalty or the condemnation of sin, but our, our death uh, to self is simply applying what Christ accomplished on the cross. It's applying his death to our own life that as he died, we in some manner likewise die. Well, again, as I said, that's not pleasant to, to talk about. That's, and yet that's, that's really uh, so much of what the Christian life is about, is dying to self. And uh, I dare say the world has everything inverted the world says that to please yourself is how you uh, have joy, how you have happiness. Jesus says basically the way to have true joy is to die to self and to live for him. So quite a, a different worldview. Uh, and we have to, again, choose. Are we going to follow the world's uh, view of with regard to uh, joy and how to bring and to enjoy that peace and contentment, are we going to uh, follow the Lord's worldview? That is, that we need to die to self in order to live for Christ. And so, as I said, there's a cost involved, whether it be a cost in following Christ, whether it be a cost in relationships at times, whether it be a, a cost in uh, a job that we may lose as a result of following Christ, or times uh, following Christ, uh, as in the case of Job, um, may bring ill health 
into our lives. Uh, many times following Christ may mean that uh, people uh, drag our names through, through the mud uh, because they despise us and despise what we stand for. Ultimately, it's not us that they despise, but they ultimately despise Jesus and us. However, let me say this, that the benefits of following Christ infinitely outweigh the cost in following Christ. Not to mention that the greater cost uh, fell upon our precious Savior in suffering for us. Uh, we can't possibly imagine his suffering and what he suffered for us. And so whatever we are suffering in this life, uh, because we're following the Lord Jesus, uh, let us also reflect upon that Lord Jesus was willing to suffer infinitely more than we can even imagine for us. And so there are inexhaustible rewards in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of all of our sin, being accounted absolutely righteous in the sight of God, having fellowship and communion, not with just fellow Christians, but having fellowship and communion with God himself, the eternal, the God who made you, the God who created everything, that you have the privilege as the children of God spending time with the living God and for all eternity being in his presence. The benefit of just the peace of mind, the peace of mind, the rest of knowing that whatever happens in your life or happens in my life, uh, that God is in control. God is using everything that happens in our life to bring about his own holy purposes. It's not meaningless. There's meaning and purpose in our lives. Regardless of what we must suffer, there's hope. The benefit of hope that this isn't all that, that it is. This isn't everything. I mean, there's hope in this world, but there's hope beyond in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has prepared for us in, in heaven. Along with, again, trials, persecution, uh, hatred uh, of us. But again, the benefits far outweigh all that we have to suffer in this life. Sometimes, again, we, we think to ourselves, we're tempted to, to think this way, that it's not worth it, what we have to suffer, and what we have to go through. It's just too hard to be a Christian and to stand for the truth and, and to be um, opposed by the entire world, it seems. 
But the Lord says to us, and he is who we must believe, it is worth it. It is worth it. The Lord tells us what we will suffer for him. He also tells us how he will uphold us, how he will strengthen us by his spirit, by his presence with us. So Jesus says in John 16, 1, that he uh, has been very honest with his disciples in order that they might not stumble, that is, that they not be offended and fall away by what they have to suffer uh, for him, for his sake. You see, this is one of the temptations of the enemy, discouragement from what we suffer for the sake of Christ. Discouragement is often how those who profess faith in Christ fall away from Christ. Discouragement over what they are going through, the trials, the suffering, and they throw up their, their hands and say, I can't do this anymore. I can't take another step. When in fact, true Christians, God always supplies the grace to do what is right and to take the next step. To take then the next step after that and the next step. To simply take one step at a time, God gives us the grace. We may look ahead and say, I can't, I can't get to that point. I, I can't see how I can get to that point. God just calls us every day and throughout the day to take the next step, to please him, to follow him, to be faithful to him. In the parable of the seed in the sower in Matthew 13, remember what happened in the case of the second soil that fell upon stony ground. Do you remember why that seed did not bear fruit? Let me read it for you. Matthew 13, verses 20 through 21. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon, that is immediately, with joy receiveth it. So initially, very quickly, this soil, or the, what the soil represents is a person who receives the word. Immediately there's joy. They received it with joy. But notice in verse uh, 21, Yet hath he not root in himself, but doeth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended, stumbles, and does not come back to Christ because of what he has to or what she has to face by way of trials and tribulations. That's not a true Christian. That's not one who was truly born again because all true believers persevere. Even in the spite of persecution, they persevere. They may fall, they may struggle, they may uh, 
be a they may you know uh, in various ways um, not be at times faithful, but they repent, they turn back, they they come to Christ and say, I I have sinned against Thee, Lord, forgive me, help me to walk this path. So it's important that we are very honest with new converts. Don't want to paint a, a rosy picture to those that we present the gospel to and say, ah, everything is just going to be great. Just become a Christian. And the Lord takes care of everything. You don't have any more problems or anything like that. Uh, in many ways, I dare say that the struggles that, that a Christian has, uh, because now... Um, they really have the enemy uh, coming after them. And in many ways, the struggles don't diminish, but the struggles increase. But we, again, have one to carry us through those struggles, even unto eternal life. So we can paint the, a true picture to the new convert, say, the Christian life is not easy but is infinitely rewarding. It is, it is a life that bears fruit and that is, gives meaning and purpose in the midst of everything that's going on. So we don't become a Christian in this life uh, to avoid and to have no problems. Uh, we, we again follow Christ, we become Christians uh, in, in order to have, uh, again, Christ, to have forgiveness, to have righteousness, to have everlasting life. To spend that time in communion with Jesus Christ. Verse 2, back to John 16, verse 2. Jesus says, They shall put you out of the synagogues, Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. So Jesus says here that the Jewish religious leaders will excommunicate them, will put them out. That's what, uh, what, that's what it means when it, Jesus says, they shall put you out of the synagogues. It means they will excommunicate you. That's, uh, you'll recall in John chapter 9, what they did to the man born blind and was healed by the Lord Jesus and because he wouldn't deny Christ and he wouldn't say that Jesus was a sinner and uh, a false prophet, that uh, they put him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. The apostles... Uh, even after uh, Christ ascended into heaven, uh, did not attend uh, the Jewish assemblies, did not attend the Jewish synagogues in order to be instructed uh, and in order to be taught by those who rejected and disbelieved the Lord Jesus Christ. So they didn't attend synagogues uh, in order to be taught. Um, they had the wisdom and the knowledge of God by way of 
Christ, having given them that knowledge and by way of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them, they went into the synagogues, they went into the Jewish assemblies to proclaim Jesus, to teach them about Christ, and to present to them that Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of those prophecies that we have in the Old Testament scriptures. The apostles took the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Why to the Jew first? Well, I would submit to you that uh, they did so because of God's covenant that God made with his people Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, as we talked about this past Lord's Day, that covenant that God made with them, that the Lord uh, himself told his disciples while he was even yet with them, um, don't go to the Gentiles first. Go to uh, those are, who are of the household of Israel. Go to them and proclaim the gospel first. Uh, in Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. doesn't mean that they didn't go to the Gentiles, but they first presented the gospel to the Jews, and then they presented the gospel uh, to the Gentiles as they, you know, uh, again, ministered. Here we see again, we're talking about excommunication, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Let me say this again about lawful excommunications and unlawful excommunications. Lawful excommunications being put out of the fellowship and communion of the church are intended to be corrective remedial, uh, medicinal, that the spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, may be saved, and not that it may be lost, but that the spirit may be saved. It's intended to heal and to restore sick souls in drawing them back by faith and repentance into the fellowship of Christ and his church. That's that's what lawful excommunications are intended to be and to do. Unlawful excommunications are intended to be vengeful and retributive. They're intended to, uh, unlawful excommunications are intended to be a curse, uh, to condemn a soul to eternal punishment. Um, that's not a lawful, that's a I believe, an unlawful view of excommunication. But the Lord Jesus here, I believe, says, uh, Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. In other words, those who kill you will be sincere. They may even 
by way of their sincerity, think that they're doing God's will by killing you, by persecuting you. That's what the Apostle Paul thought as he gives his testimony in Acts 26. He thought he was doing God's will. He thought in persecuting Christians that he was doing what God wanted him to do. Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. This is before King Agrippa giving testimony. And he says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. He thought he was doing God's will in what he was doing. But you see, that's where, again, we can so deceive ourselves and we can become uh, so blinded to what is right and what is wrong that we can think we're doing what's right when we're actually doing what's wrong. That's, that's the nature of of sin and, and the darkness and the self-deception that, that can come over a person. Do I think that those, simply because they're in a false religion, are insincere? No. I believe that many are sincere in what they believe, but their mere sincerity doesn't save them, nor does our mere sincerity, regardless of what we believe, save us. Sincerity is very, very important that we not, again, simply go through the outward motions, but it's the truth. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us. It's Jesus that saves us. It's not our mere sincerity that saves us. It's God that saves us. Many of the greatest persecutors of the faithful throughout history whether it be the Jews, the Romans, whether it be the papacy, whether it be Islam, or modern rulers even today, have been sincere, but sincerely wrong. Proverbs 14, 12 says that there, there is, again, a, a way in which men go and they, they go that way sincerely, sincerely, but it's a way of death. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The ways of death. So some have thought, again, Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen to them. They're going to think, those who kill them, they're going to think they're doing God a service. They're being faithful to God. Good intentions 
just to say a couple more things about this. Good intentions are not necessarily true piety. Let me say it again. Good intentions are not necessarily true piety if they are not directed to what is right and what is true according to God's word. In other words, the ends do not justify the means. The supreme and infallible standard uh, in all ethical, in all moral, in all religious decisions is, is not our feelings, is not our intentions, is not our sincerity. That infallible standard is God's holy word. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be sincere, so don't misunderstand me. We must be sincere, but we must be sincere in the truth, in what God has revealed in his holy word. It's not either or. In other words, it's not either sincerity and good intentions or following the truth. It's both and. It's sincerity and good intentions and following the truth as to what God has revealed in his word. It's the right intentions and the right standard. Verse 3. Jesus says, And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Let's remember in this discussion of persecution what the biblical definition of persecution is. We can just throw the term around uh, and, and mean different things by the word, but to try and understand what does the Bible mean? What does God mean when we find persecution mentioned in, in Scripture. Well, biblically speaking, persecution is defined as suffering for the sake of Christ and his truth. It is not simply suffering for whatever cause that one stands for. It's not necessarily suffering for even a particular religious cause. Jesus says, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. When God told the Israelites to tear down the idols and altars of the heathens in the land of Canaan, were the Israelites persecuting the Canaanites? No. 
they were seeking to obey God in that particular instance. God had told them specifically what to do with regard to the altars and the idols that they found in Canaan. They were to destroy them. That wasn't persecution. That was doing what God called them to do in that instance, in that situation. Uh, when Elijah had uh, those that should have uh, prohibited and prevented worship of Baal, when he had them executed there uh, on the mount, when, uh, again, you'll remember the, the prophets of Baal uh, gathered and Elijah and they built separate altars and called for the, the uh, worshipers of Baal called for Baal to send the fire to consume the sacrifice and then Elijah uh, uh, did the same called upon God and God sent the fire and afterwards um, Elijah uh, said uh, uh, to those as I said who should have put these worshipers of Baals, the, the, these uh, false prophets to death, slay them. Was that persecution? Or was that, again, in that instance, were they following the will of God uh, in doing so? So my point simply is this, that it's not persecution for a civil magistrate to, uh, in a covenanted nation, that has sworn allegiance to God, a covenanted nation that uh, has established the law of God as the supreme law of the land, that has established biblical reformed Christianity as the religion of that land. It's not, un it's not persecution for a magistrate in that situation to prohibit the public exercise of false religion. It's not persecution for that magistrate to prohibit blasphemy against God. It's not persecution uh, for that magistrate to forbid and to prohibit idolatry. That's what God's commandments, that's what the Ten Commandments say. That we, as individuals, but also as magistrates, that's their duty uh, as those if they are fulfilling the office that God has given to them, uh, they are to be the minister, according to Paul in Romans 13, they're to be, magistrates are called, and that uh, office of magistracy is, is established by God uh, to be the minister of God to thee for good. How would, uh, how would one be a minister of God and, and disobey God's commandments? How would one be a minister of God and allow uh, people to blaspheme God's name and, and there to be no consequence to blaspheming God's name? You know, public blasphemy or public false religion, worshiping other gods. <clears throat> so again, this, this is uh, important to know uh, what persecution from a biblical perspective is and what it is not. In this verse, in verse 3, uh, Jesus gives the reason why religious 
and civil rulers will persecute the faithful. And the reason is this, they do not know the Father or the Son. That is, they may profess, you know, in a general way to know God, but they truly don't. If they persecute that which is righteous and good, uh, even if they claim to be a, a member of a particular church, but if they are persecuting those who stand for what is right and following Christ, rather than punishing that which is wicked and evil, then they show they don't know God, the Father, and they don't know the Son, regardless what they say. They truly don't know. They are not those who follow God's commandments. You see, ignorance of God's word or rebellion against God's word you can always mark it down, will inevitably lead to injustice, to tyranny and abuse of authority, and will lead to corruption. That's where ignorance of God's word and rebellion against it will lead. Those, again, who are firmly instructed by by God and by his word, by his commandments, will be, will rule justly, will rule on behalf of God, will be a blessing uh, to those who are uh, under their oversight. They will seek not only in their own lives, but desire and seek to have in the lives of those that they serve God's righteousness manifest. They will be servants of God and, and to those that they leave, lead. And that applies not only to civil magistrates, that not only applies to those in, in authority in the church, it applies to those who lead families as well. Those who lead, whether in family, church, or state, if they're ignorant of God's word or they rebel against it, there's going to be injustice, tyranny, and corruption in that leadership. In verse 4, Jesus says, But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. So once again, Jesus is telling his disciples what persecution will come their way for two reasons, as both a, a confirmation of, uh, uh, of his own divine foreknowledge that he knows what is coming to them by way of persecution, that they can expect to be cast out of the synagogues, they can expect to be persecuted. And so uh, his telling them of these things shows that he knows, he is, he is God. He knows what is going to happen to them. But also, he tells them uh, in order to spiritually prepare them uh, for these hard times that are going to come. He doesn't want them to just be walking, whistling, you know, uh, and thinking everything is going to be rosy and then to be hit 
uh, with this persecution. He wants them to be prepared. And so he tells them in advance so that they might know what to expect. We're not, again, as parents doing our children, I don't think uh, uh, really um, uh, any, well, not, I don't want to phrase it that way, but we're really not helping our children in the way that we ought to if we don't tell them of hard times that could come upon them. Um, again, that's not to scare them. That's not to drive them into despair, but, but we can do so in a way that we are spiritually preparing uh, our children and grandchildren for hard times that may come. And again, there's maybe uh, certainly uh, ways in which we can physically, materially prepare, but uh, we have to especially, most importantly, spiritually prepare our children and grandchildren for um, those things that, again, may lie ahead of us. And again, as we scan and observe what is going on, um, I don't think we're moving in a direction where more of our liberties that we have given to us by God are uh, being um, preserved for us but rather, to the contrary, more of them are being taken from us. And if that is the direction we continue to head down, we can only expect hard times to increase, not to decrease. And so, again, preparing ourselves, not hiding those things entirely from our children, certainly, again, as I said, not trying to scare them half to death, but to prepare them so they're not caught off guard. That's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He says that he didn't tell them these things from the beginning because he was with them. That is, uh, he's simply saying um, he didn't dwell on the hard times at the beginning of his ministry because he was with them to teach them and to preserve them uh, by way of his own bodily presence with them. But he now believes as he's going to be crucified, buried, raised from the dead, ascend into heaven, being enthroned at the right hand of God, it's urgent to tell them, tell his disciples these things because he will no longer be with them bodily. Uh, but he's not going to leave them helpless. He's not going to leave them hopeless. He's going to send his spirit, as we see, and we'll get there in just a moment, in verse 7. So John 16, 5, Jesus says, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? This seems to be a, a, a gentle rebuke uh, to the disciples when he says, And uh, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? Rather than, again, wanting to know, Lord, where are you going? Uh, what is it going to be like there? Are we going to join with you? Are, 
you know, whether these kinds of questions uh, being stimulated by what Jesus is saying, rather than that, where are their minds? Everything seems to be fixed upon earthly matters, earthly issues. And to such a, an extent that the glories and the treasures of heaven did not seem at this point to be occupying their minds. Why is it that we who profess faith in Jesus Christ wait until we are often wait until we are on our deathbeds to seriously consider the treasures, the peace, the joy, the perfect communion, the glorious service to Christ that awaits us in heaven. That communion, perfect, endless communion with Christ, perfect peace, no sin, no temptation, perfect joy, service, not you know, being lazy, not saying, I'm so bored here, what do I, having activity and service, continuously serving the Lord. Why is it that we wait to allow those truths to so fill our minds until life is about ready to expire from us? I encourage us all, let us not wait, lest we not find when we are on our deathbeds, lest we not find that perfect peace in our dying days. Let us dwell now upon these important truths of what the Lord has prepared for us. Not like the disciples whom Jesus rebukes and says, you've not asked me where I'm going. You ought to be asking me where I'm going, what is going to happen by way of the glories that have been prepared for me and you. But you're not asking me these things. You ought to be. Let us dwell now while we are alive, while we are uh, healthy or have a measure of health, even while we are young. Don't wait until you are so sick or until your health has been taken from you. Don't wait. These are too important of matters to put off and to delay and to not make a part of your, your daily living. Let us dwell often in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 1611. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? If you truly embrace and believe that with all your heart, your dying days are going to be days of peace and joy. If that is not something that you embrace now and that becomes a part of your daily existence and living, you may sadly find that your dying days are torment to you and anguish. Verse 6, John 16, 6. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Because the hearts and minds of the disciples, again, were so fixed upon that which was earthly, 
They could not grasp the hope of the glory that God had prepared for them. Therefore, their hearts were filled with sorrow. They were so earthly minded and their focus was so much upon the earth and upon what Jesus had said by way of the hard times that would come. Their hearts were filled with sorrow and ours will be too if we do not have a hope beyond these times of sorrow, these times that are hard. That will always be the case in our life when all we can see Dear ones, is our pain, our suffering, our persecution. When all we can see is our sin, our hearts will be filled with sorrow. We are to see our sin. We are to repent of our sin. But if that's all we see is our sin, it's only going to lead to sorrow. If sorrow over sin does not lead to comfort, in the promises of God, comfort in the mercy of God that's found in Jesus Christ and in his forgiveness and walking in loving obedience to his commandments, we will live in sorrow, perpetual sorrow, rather than living in joy, living in joy because of God's goodness and mercy unto us in Christ Jesus. We always have to in, in, as human beings, there must always be hope. Hope keeps us going. Hope keeps us alive. Hope keeps us walking in faithfulness even when it's hard and difficult. Hope that God is in control. Hope that what we see now will not always be. Hope that there is coming to us a much, much more glorious and better time than what we see now. Hope that God will keep his word and his promises regardless of what his enemies do unto us. Hope. So when, even when we, like the disciples of old, are stressed out and sorrowful due to our suffering, due to our trials, that we face now or which we shall face in the future, let us see in Jesus here that he is ever patient. He doesn't, he gently rebukes them, but he doesn't come down, he doesn't uh, strike them, he doesn't bring down fire from heaven upon them because they were struggling, because they uh, allowed the cares of this life to so overwhelm them. Notice again the kindness, the patience, the long-suffering of the Lord Jesus with his disciples. And he is that way with us as well. And that's why, again, he should be the first one we flee to, not the last one. When we need hope, when we need forgiveness, when we need help, he should be the first one we flee to. He gently will comfort us, even as he patiently rebukes us. And then finally in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is, up, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. 
that if I depart, I will send him unto you. So though Jesus must go, he assures his disciples here and he sure assures us as well that he will not leave us without comfort. He will not leave us and forsake us in the midst of the most difficult trials and hard times that we face, but we'll send, he says, the comforter. Uh, another way of translating uh, that word, per, uh, paraclete, is encourager. He will send the comforter. He will send the encourager in his place, who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was already working in the lives of his disciples, and of all those who were born again in the Old Testament or uh, during the ministry of Christ, the Holy Spirit was already working in their lives. But here, this blessing which Jesus speaks of is that the Holy Spirit would be given to his people uh, in a, uh, and to all of his people as a part of, again, their, uh, their um, new covenant salvation. He would be given uh, uh, in the place of himself. He ministered to his disciples bodily he was there to teach them, to instruct them, to love them, to comfort them, to heal them. Uh, he was there for them. And he says, I'm going to bodily be ascending into heaven. I won't be here bodily anymore. So I'm going to send to you the comforter, the encourager, the helper, another translation, the helper, the Holy Spirit to be with you. He is going to be my vicar. He is going to be the one who I send in my place. He is going to be the one now to comfort you, to encourage you, to help you, to heal you, to instruct you, and to teach you, as I did. And that's the Holy Spirit that we've all received by way of God's gracious gift to us when we are born again, when we and we uh, then trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can say as we close, we do have Jesus with us. Even if we do not have him here bodily, we have Jesus with us because we have his Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't consider it a loss for him to ascend to heaven and to send the comforter here. He doesn't say, sadly, uh, this is going to be to your disadvantage, uh, disciples, for me to go to heaven and the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, the, Jesus says uh, this, this is to your benefit that I send my comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. It's not a loss. It's a gain, according to Jesus. Jesus is really really with us by his Holy Spirit. Let's stand in prayer. We thank thee, our great and mighty God, for thy truth, which thou hast given to us in thy word this evening. And as the Lord Jesus teaches us, through 
uh, the Word of God, so the Holy Spirit teaches us uh, as He indwells us and guides us into uh, that, Thy truth. Give to us, Lord, uh, sincerity, true godly sincerity, and uh, good and holy intentions uh, in doing thy holy will. Let us not be those who simply uh, think that, uh, like so many in the world, that sincerity is all that really matters. No, it's sincerity in the truth that matters. Sincerity in the gospel, sincerity in the commandments of God, sincerity in the true doctrine and teaching and worship and government of the church. That's what matters. And we pray, Lord, minister unto us. In Jesus' name, amen.